Good morning. Y'all can uh, find your seats. We're going to get started this morning. We've got a whole lot of things that we want to be able to uh, enjoy and fellowship and study God's Word and worship through music. We have a couple baptisms, and uh, just and we're going to hear from uh, our missionary, well, kind of a missionary, Christian school, and, and how to pray for them in the starting of the school year. So a lot of things going on. So let's start it off by... Um, Just take a moment and stand up and say hi to the person that's next to you. (laughs) Greet them. There you go. One of the things that, as you can see, the kids have come in is baptisms. We've been blessed with a, a number of people that have been wanting to get baptized as God's been working on their hearts. And so we have a... Two baptisms this service, and then we have two baptisms next service um, that we're going to be hosting with that. So, what is baptism? Baptism, by definition, is to immerse. Baptizo, it means to take something and to put it under. And it was a, it was a term that was used in dyeing cloth. So, if you had a white shirt and you wanted to make it red, you would take that white shirt and then you would baptize it into the red dye and it would take on all of those colors been part of, part of uh, many faith systems and structures to be able to declare one's faith. It was part of Judaism. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you would be baptized into Judaism as a proselyte, and you would demonstrate that outward confession with that. John the Baptist, who was out in the wilderness, was baptized in people for the remission of sin. So what his baptism was about was people going and they were publicly declaring, yes, I'm a sinner. You say, well, why was that important? Because Jesus was about to show up to die for the sins of the people. So within that, then we have the Christian baptism, and that's what we practice today. And what is that baptism? It's identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Paul in Romans chapter 6 had said, should we continue to sin? May it never be. For those who have once died to sin, how will they live? And so as a Christ follower, what we do is, as a memorial, we are baptized. Just as Jesus died on the cross and then was placed into the tomb and rose again, we symbolize that through baptism. So those that get baptized, then they publicly declare their faith. And then we go over to the baptismal where they sit, we pray over them, and then they are put into the water just like Jesus went into the tomb. And then they come out of the water to walk in that newness of life, to be able to declare that. So we have two people this morning. We have Chris Simpson and Mark Osterbauer that, did I get it right? Close enough. So Chris and Mark, if you guys want to come up. Let's give Chris and Mark a round of applause. So, this is Chris. This is Mark. You guys have probably seen him around a bit. Um, when can you get baptized? After you've accepted Christ. And so with that, what we want to do is we want to give both of them the opportunity to be able to declare to you, family and friends, you are friends, that, um, that they've done that. So, Chris, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes. And when did you do that? Uh, the 8th of this month. And in front of all these family and friends, are you ready to declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Absolutely. All right. 
Mark. Hi. This is Mark. And Mark, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Mark, when did you do that? Uh, two years, eight months ago. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And are you ready to get baptized? Let's do it. Okay. Let's go. Nope, you don't get the microphone. <laughs> This way, you guys. All right. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. So if you would, we're gonna we're gonna pray over Chris right now as a, just a, a family congregation, and then we're gonna baptize him. So Father, I thank you for Chris. I thank you for his testimony, Lord. I know that uh, for him, this is really a leap of faith to get to a place where he he finally accepts you as Lord and Savior. And he's falling into your hands and surrendering his life to you. Lord, I pray for Chris that even now that, that you would honor him for his obedience, that Holy Spirit, that you would make yourself known to him in, in this time. Father, for his family, that they would realize just that transformation, that work that you began on August 8th. You began a long time ago, but we, we see that new birth, and yet he would grow in the faith and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his obedience, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Chris, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Congratulations, brother. Thank you. Awesome. There's, you want to take a picture? There you go. I've had time with both Chris and Mark, and their testimonies are amazing. In fact, if you want to hear some great testimony, you need to have a conversation with them. It's just really, really cool. Well, let's pray for Mark even now. Father, we thank you. I thank you for Mark, Lord. I thank you that, that he is following after you in everything. Lord, I thank you for the amazing transformation that you've been doing in his life, that as he is following after you, not blindly, but succinctly, he's been studying your word and Reading through your word, Lord, I thank you that he is desiring, even now, to make this outward commitment, and, and as already began a long time ago, but, but outwardly he's declaring you. Lord, I pray that this would be an anchor to his faith, that it would be a significant day that he would always lean into and lean upon as a spiritual leader of his home and his family and just his community. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for Mark. We ask for your blessing upon him even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Praise God. Good job, brother. All right.
I think our kids are going to dismiss and head down to back down to children's ministry. So if you kids want to go and at this time. We, uh, at the end of the month, in the beginning of the next month, we always have a time of focusing on missions. And every month we have a different missionary that we support that, that comes and shares with us. Today is, uh, is no exception. We, we have uh, school starting up, and we support Columbia County Christian School as a missional project here on campus with that. And here today to join us to give us a little 411 on how to pray for them. And what's going on is Josh Sullivan. So, Josh, if you want to come up. Pre-warning, this is going to be a train wreck. Uh, Beth, if I say anything wrong, just shine lights in my face. And if it's lightning, then that's a whole different story. Um, Just an update where we're at right now. Um, If you drive by, you'll notice it looks like a small golf course out there. Um, Currently, as we stand, we have approval through the septic system, not only for the current amount of students, but even future growth, so that's a big deal. Um, uh, The engineers are continuing to uh, plan as we're waiting on permits. Uh, Currently, right now, we have 160 students. We have students on the waiting list, and uh, if you look at your handy-dandy notebook here, uh, anybody with kids knows that's from Blue's Clues, but... uh, um, there are some prayer requests in there where we're at, and uh, we, we are still currently uh, need some prayer on first a grade teacher. Um, that's a real big one. Um, prayer over the school as far as uh, God's protection. Um, what a blessing. Honestly, if, uh, if I was a, a school kid right now and you'd have told me I'd have been up here talking about this, um, I would have never believed it. So the power of God is great. Prayer is great. Um, all the prayer and support that you guys do uh, means a lot. It means a lot to me, um, a lot to the kids, and just uh, the effects on the community is a really big deal. Um, this, is, this is God's timing. Everything is God's resources. So just prayer that um, everybody moves the way God wants us to move, and this is, this is just something uh, that is in his control and his power. So I think that's all I got, Gary. Let's pray for the Christian school and, and Josh is going to stand here just kind of representing them. And understand, um, this, this work started a long time ago and God's been growing it and he's not done with it yet. Um, one of the things that I would add to our, our prayer request is uh, we've hit kind of a not a major log jam, but, but a little bit of a log jam that's kind of slowing down some of the process of, of getting the, the school moved over onto the property. So during your private prayer time, please pray that God would um, just break the log jam, that, that the, the whole process would be moved over because we have more kids than what we have room for, you know, which is good. But in, the, in this day and age, we really need to be able to expand and, and get those things taken care of. And also then teachers too, people to minister to the kids. So we pray for them. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for the Christian school. We thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Lord, we know that, that this has been your work since 2005, I think. And Lord, we know that uh, many kids have come through the school and heard your word and have gone on to be adults and to be parents. And, and some of those parents are sending their kids to the school. Lord, it's an outreach to the community. 
And you tell us to train up a child in the ways that they should go. So when they grow old, they won't depart from them. Lord, may we continue to do that through the education and through the spiritual training that takes place. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Josh. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward for this morning's tithes and offerings as we continue in our worship. We can have the worship team come on up and... and... Wow. Transformation. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have blessed us this morning. You have blessed us with your presence. You've blessed us with your power. Those that have declared publicly their faith through baptism. The witness to the young children that are here. God, all of these things you have given to us and, and we just thank you. For the resources that you've provided for us this week. Lord, we want to give back to you the first fruits of that which you've given to us. So Lord, may these offerings and tithes be used for your kingdom. For your purpose. For the gospel to go out to South Columbia County and beyond. Lord, as we continue to be obedient servants. But now, Holy Spirit, we pray not just for the blessing for this offering, but for this time. That you would lead us and guide us in our worship and the study of your word. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
so much for 
just giving us that hallelujah and giving us the ability to come together and praise your name and just lift you up, God, and just lift up the the words that we have and the expression that we have that you are just absolutely amazing and just prepare our hearts as we get together and to receive the word of, that you've brought to us through the Bible and just open our hearts and open our minds and open our eyes to what Pastor Kerry is going to teach. Thank you for everything that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, maybe seated. If you would find your way over to Acts chapter 11. As we continue our study through Luke's account of the church growth in Acts. No bare feet allowed. That was the sign that was on the church doors as Pastor Chuck Smith approached his church one morning. As he was coming into the church, he saw the sign and became very angry and very sad. You see, the church sign was put up by members of the congregation because a number of people were showing up at church with bell bottoms, bare feet, beards, studded pants. These young people were called hippies. And yet, yeah, for you young people, they really did exist. But the church was very, very worried about the brand new carpet that they had just put in. And so some people thought, well, we need to protect the carpet, so let's put the sign up. At the following church board meeting, Chuck expressed his desire, as was also his wife Kay's vision, to win the next generation for Christ. To be able to share the gospel with these young kids, these hippies, to be Christ followers. This was the beginning of what is known as the Jesus People Movement. It was a great outreach that happened in the 60s and many churches were planted of that. There was great evangelism and, and such a, that the church there in Costa Mesa grew. They started as a tent and well, a small church in Maranatha Village and then they became a tent. They outgrew the tent and young people were coming and getting saved regularly. One day there was a, another discussion where the elders had come to Pastor Chuck and they said, well, you need to tell those kids to stop wearing their studded jeans. They're scratching up the wood pews. Chuck said, then we'll rip out the, the pews and let them sit on the floor. They're used to it anyways. Now I share that with you because while the late 60s seemed like a very long time ago, the principle is relatively the same. There are many times that, that Christians will limit the gospel presentation based on presuppositions and ideas. In other words, they determine who is worthy to receive the gospel and who shouldn't receive the gospel based on judgments and outward appearances and such things. And, and many times we're reluctant to be able to approach people that are different from us. Is there a danger in that? When we think about this whole, whole idea, 
when we say, you look different than me, so therefore I'm not going to share the gospel with you, what dangers do we find in that? Well, I can tell you one of the major dangers is this, that you are presenting yourself as God. Because you're determining who is worthy to hear the gospel and who isn't. It is a wrestling match, and, and one of the things that ends up happening is we, we fight against the will of God. If God says, go share with that person, what should you do? Go share with that person. You go, well, I don't know, they're different. They got, they got jewelry all over their face. Their hair is colored. They look different than me. Or if you're a younger person, I don't know if I can go up and talk to them. They're old. You know, we, we get into these things where we push back against what God tells us to do. Another aspect that we find is this. We find the fact that we will create differences based off of faith systems and structures on how people come to faith. Is that dangerous? Yes, it is dangerous. When we start overemphasizing doctrinal distinctions as doctrinal differences to divide over, we start running into problems. When we declare my theology is better than yours. It's a very dangerous, dangerous place to be in. Some people will worship God in different ways. And, and we have to be open to the work of God's Spirit. Some people will come to faith at an early age, because they grew up in a Christian home. Maybe went to a Christian school. Never really had this, this outward experience of living in the world, and they came to faith that way, and that's how they came to faith, and that's okay. And, and then others, they'll have absolutely zero knowledge of the gospel, of church, of God, or any of that. And then they come to faith later at an older age. And, and I hear this where people will say, well, your testimony is not as good as mine. Or I want that or this or the other. You know what? God is writing your story. And His gospel is going out the way that He intends it. And we are participating in that. As Christians, we need to guard ourselves against spiritual prejudices and perceptions that hinder the work of God. I've got a newsflash for you. You're not God. There's only one God. We serve the living God and we are called to serve Him in spirit and in truth. We come to a section here in Acts where God is going to do amazing things in Acts chapter 11. It's a turning point. You see, the church has been centralized in Jerusalem and these are Jews that have become Christians with a Jewish Messiah that they're now understanding to be Jesus Christ and they're coming to faith that way. But the difficulty now is God is taking the gospel message and he's taking it outside of the culture of the Jewish Christians into the Gentile world. And Gentiles are getting saved. And the Jewish Christians are going, well, that's not right. That's not right. We, we, we have this idea that it should go this way. The gospel is moving beyond borders. And it should. In fact, Jesus said it would. In Acts chapter 1, 8, he told the disciples this. He said this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to where? 
the remotest parts of the earth. Do people live differently in other areas? Yes, they do. And the gospel was meant to go out within not just Jerusalem, but everywhere and outside of the Jewish faith. But again, they struggled with this. Peter's ministry had taken him out to Caesarea, where we last left him. If you remember, the gospel had gone to the Samaritans, and Peter and John, they checked it out. They said, yeah, it's legit. And then Peter had gone down, and he had gone into Joppa, and then up to Caesarea Maritima, where uh, Cornelius had come to faith. But the news had traveled all the way back to the mother church, Jerusalem, and the apostles and the Jews there were struggling with this and accepting this kind of work of God. They were, they were struggling with something that I think we all struggle with. Is the gospel message intended to be inclusive or exclusive? The gospel is meant to be inclusive and to be preached to everyone equally, without distinction. Why? Because as we learned last week, God is impartial. Peter would write this in his general letter to the church. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but how many? All to come to repentance. And that is the role. And so these Gentiles were coming to faith, and the church was rapidly growing in the Gentile community, And I think the Jewish community was starting to feel a little threatened. The traditions were different. They had this idea that, you know, that God's work, that Christ's death was only limited just to the Jews and a lot of different things. And it's not. Your neighbor, the checker at Safeway, the person that that lives under the bridge, the single mom, Everyone, everyone should hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone, without limitation. These, these Jews were, were struggling. And so, the Jews did, the Jewish Christians did what we tend to want to do. The Jewish Christians said, well, in order for them to become Christians, they first have to become Jews and then they can become Christians. And they created this path to Christianity that led through Judaism within this. This would be something that would plague the church for a long time. Paul would write to the church in Galatia because they were struggling about these distinctions and these silos that were being built. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. As we are baptized into Christ, dative, we are identifying with Christ. We identify with one Savior. And what's His name? Jesus. And we have to understand that God is working in different ways. It's our job not to hinder the presentation of the Gospel, but to embrace it. And to share it with everyone that is around. So, as is our practice, we only have 30 verses this week, not 50. I'm going to ask that you stand as we read through the passage. May the Holy Spirit do the teaching. And keep in mind, as, these, as we read through this, let God speak to you.
God's Word is a living document, and it talks. In Acts chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the apostles, the brethren, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him and said, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began speaking, proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying in a trance, and I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by the four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. Also, I heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Now this happened three times and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared to the house in which they were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered into the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to us, send Joppa, and have Peter, or Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I would stand in the way in God's way? And when they had heard this, they quieted down, glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution and occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived the witnesses, and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year... They met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be a certain, certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the region of Claudius, or reign of Claudius. And in the portion of any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. 
If the narrative of verses 1 through 18 is familiar, it is intentionally, as Luke recounts Peter's re-engagement with the church that's going on. One of the things that we see in this section as he comes back, as he reports to the church, is our personal preferences should never hinder the presentation of the gospel. I should never say, well, I I like this kind of person, or I like that, or I'm not going to do that, or not do that. A friend of mine, years and years ago, felt that he was called to go into the mission field. And he says, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, but please do not send me to Morocco. Now, he, he really struggled with that. He wanted to go someplace luxurious, he said. But in, in, in his missions prep, they were looking to go to Morocco. And he had a, as, as you do this, they have a number of different places they want to send you. And that was on the list. And, he, and he's like, I'll go anywhere you want to go. Here's the deal. Don't ever tell God where you're not going to go. You can bank on it. So I'm praying right now, God, please do not send me to Hawaii to start a church. <laughs> we look at this and we see what is going on. Peter is returning to Jerusalem to report what's going on in Caesarea and this big outreach that's happening. But the news had already got there. It had already traveled that far. And so when he gets there, his evangelism is challenged by the apostles. But also, did you know, the legalists, the legalists that were there, he, he was personally convinced, and he knew that God had been working. He saw it. He witnessed it firsthand. But the apostles in the church in Jerusalem, they didn't witness it. And it was so beyond their understanding that a Gentile could be saved that they thought, well, this can't happen. There is a wide range of perspectives within the church today. Everything from ultra-conservative to ultra-liberal. And, and sometimes politics gets in there, sometimes worship styles get in there. All of these different things can get in the way of our fellowship. We build silos and we, we build these, these sanctimonious places where we go, this is where I go and this is where I hide. God had never intended the church to be divided. We are one body under one headship, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do we have different kind of preferences Sure we do, but should it create a distinction such that we would discriminate against other people? Absolutely not. One of the the problems that Peter was struggling with was these ultra-conservatives that believed that the only way, the only pathway to salvation was through Judaism and adhering to the law first within this. And so this, this group of conservatives said we must obey the law including circumcision now i want you to put yourself in the mind of a gentile who has not grown up in the jewish faith nor circumcision nor the law and somebody comes to you and says jesus loves you he died on the cross for your sins and he wants to give you life eternal but you got to go have surgery to remove something that is very dear to you you're going to look at that and go, ah, what? I didn't sign on for this. And it, it, it puts a check. And what ended up happening was that 
the Jews who were under the law still in their minds, even though Jesus fulfilled the law, were trying, trying to add it to salvation. Acts 15.5 tells us that they would follow Paul around and they would, they would push back. It says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Well, that would mean that every one of us, because I don't know anybody here that is Jewish, that we'd all have to adhere to the law in addition to everything that God's Word tells us. We don't find that in Scripture. It's not balanced. It's not there. But the Pharisees were pushing it on, saying, well, this is the standard. And so within this, they were taking their historical social norms that was part of their life, and they were putting them on people. It'd be like saying, Pastor Kerry, every time you teach, you have to wear a suit. I've got a suit for marrying him and burying him. Occasionally on Christmas and Easter, but I don't know. But to take a, a, a legalistic standpoint and say you've got to do this is not right within this. How does mandating the law and mandating circumcision fit in the account of grace? It, it really doesn't within that. And if you notice the accusation that they bring in verse 3, it says, you entered the house of the uncircumcised and ate with them. Now, you might have missed that. But to say, you went into the house of an uncircumcised and ate with them is the same accusations that the Pharisees were giving against Jesus and calling Him unclean. What were they doing? Even though these were saved Jews, they were falling back into their traditionalism. And they were putting this boundary on them that, that was much more stringent than even themselves held to. Matthew 9:11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Well, the thing is, we should celebrate. What they didn't celebrate was the fact that people were being saved. Instead of celebrating that Cornelius and his whole house was saved, they were focusing on what they didn't do. It should be our celebration. When, when a sinner comes to faith, shouldn't it? We should rejoice over that and that work that God gives and, and understand that they were baptized by the same Spirit that they had received. And so within this, it, it would be a thing where we start adding to the gospel something that is never there. It is a gift of grace and it is unifying in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we all were made to drink of what? One Spirit. Now, this is going to be uncomfortable for you. Because it's going to challenge your presuppositions and attitudes of judgment. We need to step back and check ourselves. When we look at somebody and we start creating these judgments upon them and, and say, well, you know, they can't be saved or they haven't come to the fullness of the knowledge of God because they don't worship like I do. They don't dress like I do. They don't look like I do. 
So Peter explained in verses 4 through 17 succinctly how that whole event happened. And he started with his vision. He started with his vision to explain that it was God who came to him that gave to him this vision. And we covered the vision in depth last week, but it was the sheet that came down, held by four corners, had the unclean animals that came down, and he was hungry, he missed his, his breakfast, and he was waiting for lunch, and God said, kill and eat. I like that verse. And Peter said, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean, and I'm not going to start now. And God said, what I've declared clean, don't you declare unclean. What I've declared clean, don't say is not holy. And it was an object lesson to try to get Peter's attention to understand that God was sovereign. And what God declares as being holy or worthy, it is worthy. And it is not up to Peter to fall back under this law. And so he goes through the whole process of the three men coming from Cornelius. He meets with them. He takes three other Jewish Christians with him. They go back and he shares the gospel. And if you note, Cornelius was waiting to hear the gospel. That is, I, I would love evangelism like that. God just take me to people and it's like, okay, I know that you're doing something amazing. And all I got to do is just share the gospel and you're going to do the rest of the work. Sharing the gospel is a scary thing because you're really exposing yourself at risk saying, well, I don't know if what I'm going to say is going to make a difference. I can tell you this by the power and the spirit of God, what you say will make a difference because it's not you speaking. It's God speaking through you. You are a vessel, a conduit by which the Holy Spirit will move and speak. But if you don't go because of your presuppositions and your ideas, then how is the Word of God going to be spoken? We need to go. We need to go and share that gospel. Peter doesn't report his actual sermon, but he does report the results. The Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon the Jewish Christians. Now, if you're listening to this testimony from Peter, how do you argue against that? How do you argue the fact that these people experienced the same saving grace of God that you did? You can't argue against that within that. In fact, Peter even quotes Jesus as part of the promise in Acts 1.5. He says this, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit from not many days forward. One Spirit. One God. And it's the power of God that changes lives within this. It was clear to Peter, and it's becoming clear to the church, that God is doing a new work. You know, about every 40 to 50 years in the church cycle, and you can take a look at it historically, God needs to do a new work. I think we're way overdue, personally. I think that, that we've been due for a, a, a new work of God. But when you take a look at revivals that ends up happening, why do revivals take place? Because, quite frankly, the church got old and stale. And they stopped, they stopped seeing the need for that new work. Why did the Jesus People movement come about? Because the church had become institutionalized and became a monument. The work of God is a movement not a monument. The church is a living organism, not a building. And the power of God changes lives. 
It's not meant to put you into a silo and store you up for heaven, but to be poured out within that. And I love what God does in verse 18. He silences the legalist. They said, okay then. We get it. We get it. To be able to be into that place where they hear Peter's argument and their skepticism is turned away. Now, did that completely remove the legalist? No. There would be a small group of what we would later learn in Paul's letters, Judaizers. These would be people that would go around and follow Paul around and they would end up being a pain in the neck. They would follow Paul around and they would say, well, you know, Paul's preaching a gospel and that's good, but he really doesn't know it all. We need to finish teaching you and discipling you. And they would go around and try to pull people back into legalism itself. Where the Spirit of God is, there is grace. And we need to preach the grace of God. And we need to preach... Jesus. God will take care of the transformation within this. It's interesting to me that Paul and Barnabas would struggle with this group as they would preach Jesus. But we need to continue on. Luke then changes corners and and goes around the corner and he says, okay, now I'm going to write to you about this work that's going on in Antioch within the expanding Gentile church. Within this. That God intended the gospel to be, be preach to everybody without these limitations. And that would mean that the gospel would go up to Antioch within this. Now, we start out in verse 19 as we read. And in 19, it goes through and it talks about the persecution of the church. It says this, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word, and no one except the Jews alone. So what ended up happening was if you remember under Stephen, and, and so Luke takes us all the way back to 8.1, where there was the persecution of Stephen. What happened with persecution? Well, Stephen got stoned, persecution in the church was going on, and people were being put under pressure. So what did they do? They left. You say, persecution, it's a horrible thing. Mm-mm. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Why? Because it challenges people in their faith, and it moves people into places that they wouldn't normally go. Moves you out of your comfort zone within that. And so this, this persecution was going on. So uh, we, we've mentioned a couple of names here. We've got Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch that's there. And I have a map that I want to share with you a little bit to help you understand. Jerusalem is right here. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Cyprus is this island that's here about 100 miles off the coast. This area is known as Phoenicia. And we have Syria. And then Tarsus is right here. And this is the southern Turkey area that's going to be there, and Antioch is there. And so, and Caesarea Maritima would be right here. So we see the gospel circling this whole area, and this whole Gentile area that is there, and all the way out to Cyprus within there. But Antioch itself, where'd it go? There it is. Antioch itself, right there, is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome is number one, Alexandria is number two, Antioch is number three. Antioch was huge. It had estimated to be anywhere between 500 to 800,000 people that are living in the city and the the area that's there. Now, if you were going to do a church plant, would you go to a little rural place or would you want to go someplace where there's tons of people? You want to go where there's tons of people within that. 
Also, if you wanted to go hide from persecution, where do you want to go? You want to go where you can hide, where there's tons of people. So the, the Hellenistic Jews, or the Greek-speaking Jews, they go up and they land in this area, but they're preaching Jesus to who? To other Hellenistic Jews. Why? Because they are preaching to people like them. And that's what we tend to do, is friendship evangelism. We share the gospel with people that we know that we're comfortable with. And so they started preaching the gospel in this large city. The other thing that I think is important to understand is Antioch was not a really nice city. In fact, it had the reputation as sin city in the Roman Empire. There was a lot of idolatry that was going on. There was temple prostitution that was happening in there. There was all kinds of different things that was, was going on. And from 64 A.D., it was considered a self-governed city. They, they weren't under the thumb of Rome or being highly taxed within that. And so there was freedom to move, which is cool when you think about it. The gospel goes someplace and people are free to share another faith system that's outside of idolatry. And people are getting saved. Lots of people are getting saved. How do we know that? Because the text tells us the hand of the Lord was upon them. Whenever the hand of the Lord is on somebody, it's that power. And the power of God was moving. All of these divine appointments were taking place that was in this. Now the church of Jerusalem hears about what's going on in Antioch and they say, we've got to see if this is legit. Gentiles are getting saved. And, and many people are getting saved. So we need to send somebody up there. Who are we going to send? Well, they send Barnabas. Now, if you remember Barnabas, Barnabas, by his name, means son of encouragement. It's a new work of God. Barnabas comes from Jerusalem up to Antioch to encourage and to instruct. He is the same one that was encouraging Saul. He understood what it meant to do ministry. If we looked at Barnabas, Barnabas is an essential for ministry. He was a bridge builder. He was the guy that, if you were looking to build a ministry team, he's a catalyst. He's a people person, right? And so he was the guy that would always look on how to make connections with people to, to encourage them in the faith. He's described as a good man. And he witnessed the power of God in changing lives. So he comes into the city to, to bridge, build bridges and to report what's going on. Paul and Barnabas would end up being a great team. You ever wonder why Paul and Barnabas would be a great team? Paul is a great teacher, but Paul is not really a good people person. Barnabas is, is an okay teacher, but he's a great people person. And so you see that dynamic working together where God would bring them together and, and build that bridge. So Barnabas shows up into town, as we read in the text. We see all of these people getting saved. This great movement. And does he build the church of Barnabas there? No. What does he do? He goes to Tarsus. And he gets Saul. Now Saul's been in Tarsus for ten years. Why does he go get Saul? Do you remember what Saul's calling was in Acts chapter 9? You are to be my witness to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas goes and gets Saul, remembering the calling, and, Tar and Tarsus is not very far, and says, I need help. I need help. And he goes and gets this teacher, Paul. 
Ministry is never a one-person event. It is a team event. It is the family of God that's working together. And every person has a part within the body of Christ, within ministry. I have a role. Town people have a role. The front office has a role. Children's ministry has a role. Women's ministry has a role. Men's ministry has a role. All of these places have roles within the body of Christ. Why? Because I will connect with certain people and not connect with others. But you will connect with certain people that I won't connect with. And the body of Christ works together based on those fits and those calling within this. And so we see, what did the people need? They needed disciple makers. They needed disciple makers. What is the calling of the church? To go and what? Make disciples and baptize. Call people into the commitment. To make disciples. Evangelism is only the first leg of that Christian journey. Disciple makers. And if you are not being discipled, which you should be, find somebody to disciple you. And you say, well, Carrie, I've been a Christian for 900 years. Great. You and Methuselah, you got it down. It doesn't matter how old you are. You should be discipled by somebody. And you should be discipling somebody. You should be training up somebody else. You say, well, I don't know much. What do you need to know? That Jesus loves you? Share what you know. i got a great place downstairs. Children. Very simple. Their attention spans about an inch long. Get a whole lot of gospel within that time. I want to encourage you. Think about that. Barnabas went and got Paul, brought him back, and says, it's our job to disciple. And how long did they spend? A year. Discipleship is a commitment. One of the things that we'll be starting this fall is home fellowships, home Bible studies. Do you understand that home Bible studies is, yes, a place to gather, but it's also a place to be discipled, to grow. We have women's Bible studies and we have men's Bible studies. We have, on Monday nights, we have um, the YAC group, which is the young adults group. We have junior high, we have high school, we have something for everybody. Why? Because everybody needs to be in a small group and be discipled. They do. Get plugged in within this. So he goes and he gets Saul back from Tarsus, verses 25 and 26, to look for him. And he finds him. He brings him back. They spend a year in the church. And they talk, note, considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians. Do you know the word term Christian is only used three times in the Bible? It's only used three times. When we take a look at that term Christian and, and we use it, quite often today, um, it really wasn't a nice term in the beginning. The term Christians was the term that unbelieving Gentiles would call believing Gentiles. They would call them Christians or literally belonging to Christ. The other two places it's used is Acts 26.28 and also in 1 Peter 4.16. But in all three cases... It's non-believers, non-believers identifying believers, saying these people belong to Christ. Today, we've created it as a classification. 
And you don't necessarily have to belong to Christ to name that name, do you? It's been watered down. But it was a distinctive, it was a distinctive of those that were following after Christ. If people were to look at you and really go back to the original definition of Christian, could they say, yes, you belong to Christ? By your actions, by, by your appearances, by your language. That should be that distinctive that is there within that. Interesting enough, the first time that it was classified and used by regular Christians was in 2nd century A.D. by Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, when he adopted it as a distinctive for those people that were there. And so we look at it and, and we say, well, how did they belong to Christ? Because Jesus was preached to them. Preached Jesus to everyone. To everyone. So that they would belong to Christ. That they would profess that name. Now Luke ends this section with a summary statement of something that amazingly, it's just amazing that it happens. Those that were blessed by the gospel coming to Antioch turned around and showed empathy towards others. If you look at 27 to 30, we see something that is amazing. It says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them's name was Agabus. You'll find Agabus used twice. He's there twice. First here, and then he'll show up later on. I believe it's in, in um, Acts 21, 10 to 11, where Agabus comes in. And he prophesies that if Paul goes back to Jerusalem, if you remember the account, he gets tied up. You go back to Jerusalem, you're going to get tied up and you're going to go. Agabus comes down with the other prophets into Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he has a message. Here's the message. Great famine is going to happen to the land. Now, what ends up happening to somebody whose life is changed? And they are blessed because somebody has served them. They want to bless the one that has served them. The Christians at Antioch heard that the Christians in Judea were going to suffer because of the famine. And God put it upon their heart to take up a donation. Whatever, whatever they felt they wanted to do, to take up that donation to send it back to Jerusalem, to Judea, to support those brothers and sisters that were going to go through the famine. You want to know if somebody's really saved? Somebody really has empathy and loves God and loves the work of God? Follow the money. Follow the money. Because that's how people's hearts are, it demonstrates their treasure within them. When God moves on your heart to do something, you do it because of gratitude. These believers were like, man, we are so blessed because we received the gospel. We know that it came to the Jew first and now we're blessed from it. We want to support them. Why? Because they are one body. They don't see themselves as Gentile and they are Jews. They saw themselves as what? One body. Unified. Brought together. They showed compassion. They showed empathy. And they honored them and they said, this is what we've gathered. Please help our brothers and sisters. As a church, we are blessed. We have a number of missionaries that we support. And, and God has blessed us with the ability to be able to send out resources. And you guys did that with the Ukraine outreach 
where we were able to send out over $5,000 that was gathered up over a few weeks to be able to send. We get reports all the time. A new family is going to be coming here to the States that, that lost a husband to the war. Marcel wrote us this week and said they're coming to the United States to live with his sister. Why? Because they can't go to Ukraine and the husband died. And how is that made possible? Because of you. You blessed them. And because we are one body within this. Our goal as a church is not to build an empire, but to preach Jesus. And to preach Jesus to everyone without distinction. But we've got to guard ourselves against a prejudice or presupposition that creates those limitations and barriers. And we need to be open to wherever God's going to lead us to those divine appointments, wherever they might be, and say, yes, Lord, send me. And may we preach Jesus to everyone, everyone we come in contact with. That's why we're here. And may the body of Christ grow as a result of it. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us this high calling. You've given us this model that the early church followed of preaching the gospel. Lord, we know it wasn't without road bumps. It was difficult as you were breaking down the, 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 the borders and the barriers of their religion and presuppositions and ideas and all the things that they had. God, may we simply preach Jesus. God, you are not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And you have called us to go and to share that gospel. May we do that. And as we who have been blessed by the gospel, may we not hold it to ourselves, but may we give it out to those who are in the spiritual famines of this world. May we bless them too. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Thank you. 
Jesus, you are king of all. May we live that way in our lives. Father, we know that there are some that don't know that they are loved. They don't know that Jesus came and died on the cross for their sins. And that he had taken their place in judgment before you. God, there are people that don't know that if they were to place their faith and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me that they would be accepted. And if that's you this morning, whether you're in this room or watching online, the path to salvation is through Jesus, not through religion or church. If you confess your sins to Him, believe in your heart, then God will save you, fill you with His Spirit, and give you new life. May we take that gospel message to everyone for the hope that is in us. And may everything that we say and do this week, God, make you smile. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.